0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: There are a lot of theories for why Charles Darwin waited so long, over 20 years, to publish Origin of Species after returning home from his voyage on HMS Beagle. Was he worried about religious or scientific criticism? Or was he worried about something else? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today Alistair Sponsel talks about Darwin's experiences on HMS Beagle and his early career as a naturalist. Sponsel's close reading of Darwin's journals and letters reveals insights about the man that would become known as the father of evolution. Sponsel is the author of Darwin's Evolving Identity, Adventure, Ambition, and the Sin of Speculation. Alastair Sponsel, thank you for talking with me.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael.
1: So in uh, 1831, Charles Darwin, the young Charles Darwin, heads out on a voyage on the British uh, naval ship, HMS Beagle. He uh, He's on this voyage for five years. Could you give us a kind of highlight reel of Darwin's voyage?
2: Oh, I'd be glad to. And I think for me, the most important thing to remember about the voyage is that it was not conceived or executed primarily with Darwin's needs in mind. Even though he's by far the most famous person who was on the ship in retrospect, this was a naval surveying voyage a hydrographic expedition where the goal was to create new charts, new maritime maps particularly of the southeast and southwest coasts of South America. So for me, it's important always to remember that Darwin was a passenger, a particular kind of passenger, but nevertheless, a passenger on a ship that had some very specific objectives. But the journey was originally expected to last about three years. And as you say, it ended up taking a full five years. And although... Most of the voyage was spent on the coasts or near the coasts of South America. They did end up completing a circumnavigation going westward from South America first to the Galapagos Islands for a few weeks, which of course is, is a well-known port of call for Darwin, uh, but then carrying on to Tahiti and across to New Zealand and Australia and eventually across the Indian Ocean and then all the way back across the Atlantic Ocean again to touch at Brazil before finally going back in October of 1836 to Britain
1: and one of the uh, points you uh, you make that a lot of people i think don't remember is that this this voyage as you said it wasn't all about Darwin doing his work they were actually it was actually a surveying Voyage, which spent, uh, a, you know, a lot of a lot of time in one place versus other places.
2: Yeah, a lot of time spent moving, very gradually up and down the coast. And on one hand, and this is something that a lot of people who've written about Darwin have emphasized, it gave him special opportunities to go on shore and travel inland, while the ship's officers and crew were making their methodical way along the coast but also on the other hand it meant he spent a lot of time on ship and so as easy as it is to picture darwin at the galapagos or maybe darwin climbing in the andes he also had a lot of shipboard time and not just crossing uh, great big oceans for a few weeks at a given stretch but also near shore and and sleeping on the ship often, even when he was interested in studying the shore environment.
1: You know, uh, one of the things I found so interesting about your your discussion of Darwin was how much he's actually picking up from the process of voyaging itself. I mean, when I teach Darwin in my Darwinian Revolution class, um, I, I usually talk about Darwin as this guy who... He gets an invitation to uh, voyage uh, with uh, Robert Fitzroy, the captain, because Darwin is kind of a man of letters, and Fitzroy wants somebody who he can talk to for the five years that they're kicking about these various oceans of the world. You make the case that, in fact, Darwin's very integrated into the work of the voyage. I was wondering if you could talk about that.
2: Yeah, I think for me it's one of the most fascinating features of Looking at Darwin for his own sake, but also thinking about the broader history of science and the contexts in which scientific work has been done. And so, in this book, which is more broadly interested in how Darwin came to be the kind of person who studied spots of land and collected specimens as a traveler how he was able to go from being that kind of person to the sort of person who was taken seriously, authoring very grand theories about the Earth and the history of life on Earth. For me, the that initial setting of some of his well-known scientific work among not just uh, people who were traveling alongside him, but people who were deeply immersed in their own study of the natural world, in that case, by surveying, by measuring the depth of the water and the contours of the place where the sea met the land. Uh, Darwin was, again, somewhat by accident, but in ways that he definitely took great advantage of. He was thrown in among a very different sort of approach to studying nature, both from the one that uh, we might familiarly associate with him, and also from some of the context of his own previous work as a naturalist, albeit a a young and not always entirely formally trained one, collecting beetles, for example, but also with serious, serious preparation and training from people like a zoologist Robert Grant, who Darwin met at the University of Edinburgh, and then a geologist Adam Sedgwick, who Darwin met when he went to Cambridge University?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I found really interesting, and again, this goes to, let's say, my teaching knowledge of Darwin is I often link his work in the Americas to the work of Alexander von Humboldt, because he's reading Humboldt, he takes Humboldt's personal narratives with him, he even talks about Humboldt in some of his diaries. And because we think of Humboldt as this guy who is so interested in connecting phenomena, you know, connecting plants and animals with their environments, that sort of thing, that it almost seems super easy to connect the dots with Darwin. And one of the things I found really interesting about your book is you said, well, yeah, he's important, but there's all of this kind of practice that you were actually just talking about um, that also makes him think about, think holistically about Um, how organisms um, interact or are situated in their environments. I was wondering if you could talk about that, especially the hydrographic work.
2: Well, I originally had very much the same idea as you. I was fascinated by the fact that Darwin, whose best-known theories draw on ideas about distribution of animals and plants and, and minerals as well, and, of course, who traveled, he resembled Humboldt both in some features of his biography and also in some of the features of his work as well. And then he made such, that is, Darwin made such strong recollections at various points in his life about how he had been inspired by Humboldt. And the fact that Darwin traveled around the world makes it really, really easy to picture him. With, he, he took his copy of Humboldt's personal narrative of his travels to the Americas, and Fitzroy, the captain of the Beagle, was such a fan. He insisted on having his own copy as well on the voyage, despite the fact that they were all cramped for space. And so I initially was kind of a deep believer in the importance of, of Humboldt's work and Humboldt's ideas not just for inspiring Darwin to travel, but for some of the kinds of ideas he came up with. And I I continue to feel that way, but the more time that I spent looking at Darwin's travels on the Beagle, the more I was convinced that rather than just Darwin drawing on this kind of distant figure, Humboldt, an author of some of his favorite books, but nevertheless someone Darwin had never met. In addition to that, there was this real proximate influence of the hydrographic surveyors on the Beagle Voyage. and It seemed to me that the way they went about measuring depth below sea level in creating their charts was very similar to the way Humboldt famously measured altitude with a barometer on some of his famous climbs. Huh. And that the the hydrographers emphasis on placing themselves on the map was reminiscent of innovations made by Humboldt and others around the same time of plotting distribution of various things on maps. And and I think it goes even further than that. But generally speaking, it's, I think, a case that we have a set of surveyors who were fascinated by Humboldt themselves, who were doing something like a surveying uh, kind of science And not to forget that Humboldt himself had been a type of surveyor, a mining engineer in Germany before traveling to the Americas. And so Darwin had both the kind of intellectual hero pushing him to attend to things like distribution and the particular place on Earth where he was finding specimens. But also he had this immediate context of people doing the kind of work that resembled the sorts of things Humboldt had argued for.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the, the real central themes of your book is looking at Darwin's coral reef work. And you talk about how coral reefs themselves are a subject of great scientific and military interest in the 19th century. Could you say a few words about coral reefs? And then I'm going to ask you about Darwin's views of them.
2: Yeah. So coral reefs, contrary to the way that we, I think many of us think of them today as fragile and, and threatening or excuse me as as threatened by all kinds of things ranging from pollution to ocean acidification and more. Contrary to that sentiment that we may have, in Darwin's time and and going back a couple of generations to think of Captain Cook, for example, going into the Pacific on three his three expeditions in the 1760s and 1770s, coral reefs were an object of considerable anxiety for navigators and for um, for the naval administrators who sent them out on voyages to the tropics because they were seen to not just be any old kind of navigational hazard, something you could bump into, but one that actually grew, one that might be actively in the process of making the oceans more dangerous even as uh, <laughs> even as people like Fitzroy were making charts and then sailing back and having them engraved, it was seemed possible that corals grew fast enough uh, and created new reefs on a pace that might actually really undermine this sort of uh, enlightenment project of making the world safer by gathering very accurate knowledge about it.
1: huh. And uh, Darwin, for those people who um, think of Darwin as the father of evolutionary thought, a lot of them don't real, realize how important his coral work was to this project. And you spend a lot of time talking about his observations and then theorizing about coral reefs. Um, could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I'd be glad to. And it really, I think, helps to make very precise, very specific the points earlier about how Darwin benefited from being surrounded by maritime surveyors. So Fitzroy had actually been instructed by the British Admiralty to study a coral reef, a so-called circularly formed coral island, something that we would now call an atoll, uh, during the voyage precisely to to test or to view it with a, a mind to try and Analyze the quality of various explanations for how these strange ring shaped coral reefs form, why they form where they do, how it's possible for an object like that to pop up in the middle of the deepest parts of the ocean. And Darwin had some background familiarity with coral reefs, the various theories that circulated, and was interested in certainly very, very interested in making it to the Pacific and seeing some coral reefs himself. Even very early in the voyage, he likened the experience of looking at very small corals in tide pools to the, the kind of excitement that he wanted, he hoped he would feel seeing entire coral reefs when they made it to the Pacific. And throughout the voyage I, I showed, Darwin was often thinking about corals and coral reefs, and yet not necessarily in the ways that he eventually became famous for doing so. So to take a very specific example of how Darwin was able to think and work because of what the the hydrographers were doing, the way they measured depth on these surveying voyages was with something called a sounding lead. It's a heavy, almost bell-shaped piece of lead attached to a rope. And this is how the surveyors would measure depth. And in order to not just mark the depth, of the water in a given place on the charts they were making, but also to be able to include some information about the type of bottom. Was it shells? Was it sand? Was it mud? They would pack some animal fat, some tallow, into the bottom of the sounding red, and it would bring up an impression of the bottom. Well, early on in the voyage, Darwin found that What came up in the lead, the material that was brought up from the seafloor, was absolutely fascinating from the perspective of someone like him, (laughs) someone who was really, really enthusiastic already about marine zoology, particularly marine invertebrates, Uh and also in geology. So he started to pay a lot of attention to what the hydrographers were doing by looking at what came up. With every casting of the sounding red. and this in turn,
1: you make yeah. the point just to uh, just to inter- interrupt here. You, you in fact make the point that Darwin probably thought him of himself more as a geologist at this point in his career than somebody doing, let's say, the the biological work that we remember him for.
2: He was really ambitious as a geologist. He he imagined that he would probably make his name as a geologist, but he also. I think, especially early in the voyage, thought that with studying the sounding leads and the the little organisms that came up, he had a very special opportunity to do a different kind of zoology. And the argument I make is that really what was distinctive about this kind of practice was that it led Darwin to synthesize his studies of zoology and geology in slightly unexpected ways. And one of the culminations of that was in coral reefs, which are, of course, simultaneously animal and and rock. They're, they're a big geological structure that's formed by the growth of organisms. And Darwin Darwin's geological and zoological interests were really, this kind of synthesis was fostered again by the work of the hydrographers. It's really familiar to those who do history of science that later in the 19th century and in the 20th century, ecologists developed a way of studying uh, the interrelations between animals and plants and rocks by surveying particular plots of ground. And I think Darwin was led into thinking along these terms much earlier because the sounding lead indiscriminately sampled a little spot of the floor of the sea. And not only did it do that, but Mm. to connect it back to Humboldt, the little assemblage of specimens that he would get from the sounding red came built in with geographical data, you know, the latitude and longitude and the the altitude, in this case, below sea level, because every one of those casts made by the surveyors was done in the the view of plotting things on charts.
1: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And when Darwin gets back uh, from the voyage, he is quite ambitious about putting these uh, observations together in papers, but not just any papers. It sounds to me from your writing that he wants to be, you know, developing new dramatic theories in the course of writing these papers. Um, And he puts forward a coral reef paper in 1837, which you say is really critical Uh, In fact, you write, um, Darwin's coral reef paper was a work of stunning ambition that deserves to be remembered as one of the most provocative performances of his career. That's quite a statement for the guy who wrote Origin of Species.
2: (laughs) That's right. Um, But that paper was, among other things, it was the first place where Darwin publicly indicated that he thought he would have something to say about the origin of species. So you have to imagine the scene. This is still a rather young man, just returned from five years of traveling around the world. Unbeknownst to many, during that voyage, he had come up with an entirely new explanation for how coral reefs form. And without trying to go into too much detail about it, he had the idea that Atolls, as I were mentioning before, and also barrier reefs were formed when corals grew up atop a subsiding foundation, whether it was a continent or a volcanic island that was sinking. And when he returned back from the voyage, Darwin became very close with a geologist, Charles Lyell, who had already made a name for himself, publishing some fairly provocative books, arguing about the gradual rate, of change of geological phenomena and arguing also about the relations between changes in living things and changes in things like climate and the landscape as well and so lyell was extremely keen to have darwin make some of these theoretical ideas from the beagle voyage ring out with resonance for lyell's larger uh, ambitious program of geological theory. And it was in that relationship between Lyle and Darwin that Darwin presented this this 1837 paper. And he argued that he, Darwin, had come up with a new explanation for how coral reefs are formed. But this in turn would lead geologists and zoologists to a new understanding about massive movements in different segments of the Earth's crust. It would lead to new insights into the internal nature of the earth itself. And then just to top it off, it would also, uh, shed light on the origin of species. So it really was a spectacular (laughs) paper.
1: (laughs) And yet there's this huge gap of time, uh, between this early work where he's, uh, really out in front as a theorist and then the origin of species which is published in 1859 and this is talked about a lot in the history of science community as this period of time where Darwin isn't publishing this thing that everyone well, that his close friends know he's working on about evolution and uh, most people kind of put the reason as being that he is concerned with the uh, way that evolution is going to go over among um, not just the Religious community, but among his scientific peers. And you actually take a different approach to that question of Darwin's hesitation and anxiety. Uh, could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I did not set out to write about at all when I was originally working on Darwin in the context of, of exploration and voyaging. But my studies of the Beagle voyage and then his work immediately afterward really led me to think very differently about what I think have been some of the, not just the best known ideas about Darwin's career and his life, but also some that feel like they really ring true. So this idea that although Darwin became an evolutionist very shortly after the Beagle voyage, sometime in the late 1830s, that he felt constrained in various ways and and discouraged from publishing that, largely because in one respect or another, the topic of evolution would just be too problematic. And I ended up feeling that there is a strong connection between what you had just uh, brought up, which was Darwin's very ambitious, very provocative, early theorizing as a geologist after the voyage. And then this this striking reticence to become publicly known as a theorist of evolution. And the argument the argument that I... I make is that in fact this early work in geology that darwin published at lyle's urging actually he felt had made it so challenging him for him to follow up with a kind of sober and thorough book (laughs) on geology because it had given people on one hand a a sense that this was a really exciting thinker who just returned from traveling around the world. But on the other hand, the question of whether he was someone who was a little over prone to speculating, to theorizing, um, a little over eager to offer these very ambitious statements. And so it turns out, I think rather than the private work on species that Darwin was doing all along in these exact same years, being something that made him very nervous and made him gradually feel rather ill and rather discouraged, that actually it was the public pressure he felt to live up to the early reputation theorizing on geology that, Basically, served him as a kind of negative object lesson for what to do with his species theory. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I get the impression from uh, from your writing that it's actually the evolution stuff that's his like little break from the stress. I mean, it's like him watching a Netflix film or something, <laughs> playing around with ideas um, about evolution.
2: I, and I realize that it might seem not just counterintuitive, but kind of absurd to think that. Darwin might have been absolutely agonizing over people's thoughts about whether he was a responsible theorist of coral reef formation on the one hand, and then on the other (laughs) hand, uh, kind of thrilling at his private work on species. But I really think that the documentary record, his notes and journals and some of his letters really reflect this. He would write about the crushing pressure he felt to live up to that expectations that he had set for himself with his early geological papers but then he would describe frittering away his time not writing his geological book as promised but instead gathering notes about the origin of species and <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a uh, kind of a eureka moment for me to to suddenly think that wow he was really it, it seems like the the correlation that looks like it exists in the record between darwin working on species privately and also feeling kind of ill, feeling demoralized is perhaps not because the idea of studying evolution was so sickening to him, but because it was the very thing he did as a kind of diversion, a kind of relief from the pressures when it was just insurmountable to think of actually producing this big geological book that he, he had promised people he would write.
1: Yeah, reading your book was a bit of a eureka moment for me too because um, I read Origin in grad school and um, I was always kind of wondering at these later chapters in Origin of Species, things like there's this big chapter, Difficulties of the Theory, <laughs> uh, where Darwin is talking about why his own theory has problems uh, and then trying to m- move through the problems or uh, the imperfection of the geological record. It's like he's constantly trying to back up what he knows are the weaknesses in his own theory. And I always thought it was just, he's, well, he's just a really careful guy. But yeah, but reading I guess about your your description of his early experience, it it totally makes sense.
2: Well, that was one of the things that ended up really profoundly shaping how my book ended up coming out. <laughs> was I never really intended to write too much about the origin uh, or about the later part of Darwin's career in a book that was initially very much about his his work as a geologist, but just as you say, rereading The Origin of Species with the perspective I had basically from studying Darwin as though he was not eventually going to become this person who wrote this this book that came out in yeah. 1859. It just ended up uh, casting some of those things in such a different light for me. And the origin has been described uh, by some readers as one long argument, but in another way, it is also kind of one long Apology for not being, <laughs> <It's true. laughs> for not being even longer, uh, or for not being even more thorough. And it's, it's true. It's <laughs> easy to forget that even though the book is almost five hundred pages long, it's a very, very truncated, very abbreviated version of what Darwin took himself to be working on. So, in the end, as many listeners will know, Darwin was kind of prompted by. Another naturalist, Alfred Russell Wallace, writing to him with a similar theory to natural selection. And Darwin ended up, in a sense, having to do exactly what he had been trying to avoid doing all along, which is yeah. push out something that to him felt like a very hasty and a very premature statement of his theory. And so I think it helps to explain why Darwin spends really the first several pages of the origin Apologizing for being seemingly hasty to publish something that he had actually been working on for more than 20 years. Yeah.
1: You took a number of travels of your own uh, following in the footsteps of Darwin uh, through the Pacific uh, region on various islands. I was wondering what it was like to be at these places after you had done this kind of work on Darwin. How did it shape your
2: experience? Well, it was a real really exciting. And um, I felt really fortunate to be able to go. I I spent some time in some parts of the Andes where Darwin had gone and also at Tahiti and also in the Indian Ocean actually at the only atoll Darwin visited, which is called the South Atoll of the Cocos Keeling Islands in the Indian Ocean. And in each case, it was exhilarating, and not just because Darwin had been there, but these are remarkable places with their own histories. And Darwin was always kind of an interloper <laughs> in in these settings himself. But it also did really shed light for me in a number of ways. And I have some pictures, some photos that I took that I, I used to illustrate the book that point to these in a couple of respects. But it was not the case that I had sort of a single method in mind of trying to precisely retrace Darwin's steps in this point or that point. But I often had specific questions that were born from reading his notes or reading his publications or a specific objective. So at Tahiti, for example, I I have an argument in the book, which is very contrary to what Darwin wrote late in his life in his autobiography about the importance of tahiti in particular for the origin of his coral reef theory and of a not just that but a particular view from tahiti across to another island and it was really interesting to try to try to recapture that view that darwin had written in his private notes in 1835 was so important to him but which kind of fell out eventually in the in the published record of the voyage
1: mm. yeah alistair Sponsel, thank you so much for talking with me
2: all oh, right it's been a pleasure thanks michael
1: that's it for today the music was composed by zabrat make sure you check out the time to eat the dog's website for podcast links and other exploration related stuff and if you get the chance please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts it really helps make the show visible to new listeners and if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment Feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.